This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, Disorderly Conduct, and Moyers and & Company. And a note to all the white people, go ahead and pull out your self-flagellation whips. It's time for a ritualized penance for our original sin of slavery that we are all totally responsible for. Bill O'Reilly was talking about white privilege. It's a subject that's been going around in the news in the past week. A Tal Fort Gang is a young conservative who says he doesn't need to check his privilege. And now there's a class or an orientation course, I suppose, that, that is going to be uh, required at an Ivy League university at Harvard. And they're debating whether or not this makes sense. Let's see if you can guess before we roll the video, does Bill O'Reilly believe in the notion of white privilege? Now, to sum the words white privilege or code, they really mean white supremacy. White privilege, Reverend, what does that mean to you? Well, white privilege uh, speaks to the benefits that some enjoy based on their race in this society. It doesn't speak to uh, their advantage or, or their inclination of any individual. I'm, I'm a really white guy. When I was in Hawaii last week, I couldn't go in the sun. If I was in the sun for three minutes, my ears would fall off. All right. Now, I'm from Levittown, as you might know, out on Long Island. And my parents yeah, didn't have me. a lot of money. All right. Do I have white privilege? Am I privileged in any way under this banner? Yes. Because, because none of the things that you none of the things that you've indicated speak to the issue of white privilege. White privilege isn't whether your skin pigmentation is strong or weak. It isn't uh, how much money you have in the bank. It is you, you are the beneficiary of of years of uh, whites whites having an advantage in this country. Based I, I, but on I don't I don't under, I didn't experience that when I worked in Carvel painted no, 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 houses, cut lawns. But others have experienced it. Others experienced it. Right, it's, again, I'm, it's I'm not gonna a have question of whether you're a good myself. person or work hard. I'm going to have to exempt myself under that white privilege banner. I love that he's using the example of him vacationing in Hawaii to explain how he is not a, a, a product of white privilege. But well, I just want to really quickly great, say something. Yeah, I just want to make a really quick point about that whole conversation, though. First of all, Bill O'Reilly has no interest in learning about or understanding what white privilege is. So what I'm about to say wouldn't work uh, if it was... Uh, you know, presented to him on the program. But the way that it's discussed on the show, I don't think is a good way of getting the point across either. If you want to talk about white privilege, you talk about institutionalized racism. You talk about how a disproportionate amount of black people are serving jail sentences for nonviolent drug offenses. Even when you look at the numbers and you notice, hey, you know what, there's no difference uh, between white people and black people smoking pot, but for some reason, black people are prosecuted and, and sent to prison at higher rates than white people. So you yeah. can bring up an example like that. You give specific numbers. You can bring up the example of a 16-year-old kid driving drunk, crashing into four people at the side of the road, and killing them, and then getting off with no prison sentence at all because he can say that affluenza is his defense. Mm -hmm. So you bring up cases like that. But by trying to explain it by saying, hey, you know what, you know, your parents had a certain amount of money, it's not going to get through to people. you got to bring up uh, specific statistics. But nonetheless, even if you do bring up those statistics on a show like Bill O'Reilly's, he has no interest in understanding what white privilege is. I like, uh, thank you, uh, Reverend Jacques de Graff, who was like, because I like, the, this is my impression of him during Bill O'Reilly's, like, <laughs> it would be funny, like, when I was out, I went out to the sun in Hawaii, and my ears were going to fall off, but I went out there for three minutes, and I grew up in Levittown, and here's Jacques de Graff. 
<laughs> he wasn't he, playing ball. No, he was not like, yeah. I don't like, think he's going to He wasn't like, yeah, and I mean, and I think you make a great point, Anna, but I think it's also important that, like, if we're good, the phrase, you know, later there's a, I don't know if we're, are we going to play Stuart Varney? Yeah, we will. So like Stuart Varney calls it divisive, and it can be divisive because, of course, it has the effect of making people who aren't racist bristle. Yeah, because, because when they, they do don't anything, understand what it means, because they don't understand what it means, and they think, "What? Well, I didn't do anything wrong. I actually, I yes. do, I actually do have black friends, and I don't judge people based yes. on race." Right. And, I, and, I and I worked really hard to get to where I am, and, and I, I think that when you hear exactly. something like white privilege, people think that it discounts what they've achieved in life, and that's not necessarily the case. It's talking about a larger system, a larger problem in yeah. society. And that's the point that Jacques yeah. de Graff was eloquently trying to make. Yeah, yeah, and why he probably won't be back on the show. Right, probably yeah. won't be back on the show. But I like how he just, I really love that he didn't play along with because like, mm -hmm. it's very exactly, tempting yeah. even if you I'm disagree handy, with like. O'Reilly even I mean, even to be like to you know he's the host and he's this gregarious guy and you want to be like yeah you're in Hawaii and you got sunburned yeah. white person yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I understand that that whenever we talk about white privilege our the audience I will say on YouTube generally does not is not fond of the term um, and so they probably will not listen to what I'm saying right now, but white privilege does not mean that you were rich, and it doesn't mean that your skin is resistant to the effects of the sun. All it means is, as you go through your day, you benefit in innumerable, innumerable ways based on the color of your skin without having to do anything to get it. It has nothing to do with you being able to call up and get a million dollars. It means that in many ways you get the benefit of the doubt and you benefit from government policies that might have been around 80 years ago. If they were giving low interest rate, uh, loans to get homes 60 years ago and your ancestors were able to get it and now they have you know, something that they can do another mortgage on to pay for you to go to college, that's a privilege you had based on government policies long before Are you were born. Are you trying to give Bill O'Reilly's history? Because that's it. It's probably, yes. No, no, Levittown. it's not. It's not Levittown, no, it is it. It is it. That's yes. what happened. He benefited from it in Levittown. And it doesn't mean you're a bad guy. No, you didn't do anything. Like but I, you benefit. I definitely benefited from it. I, I benefited from it in, in, in enormous ways. I'm, am I'm, I'm a super great guy. <laughs> <laughs> but I benefited from it, and it doesn't mean that I give everything I have to to uh, some immigrant because I should, right? Yeah. But it does mean that we just all we're trying to do is acknowledge it. I don't think it's a great phrase. Because uh, I think it is divisive, yeah. and I think it alienates people who are prepared to side with progressives mm -hmm. on a number of issues. Yeah. Well, I will say, uh, the reason I think fundamentally conservatives, or especially white conservatives, will never be able to acknowledge that it exists is because the, I, I guess the foundation of conservatism is the idea that only people who work hard will, will succeed in life. And so if I'm a success, it's because I worked hard. I can't acknowledge that anything helped me along the way, except for one thing. You can acknowledge that God helped you along the way only because he conveniently does not exist. <laughs> um, but let's let's go to, to Stuart Varney. We've got a little bit more of it. Stuart Varney doesn't necessarily agree all the way with Bill O'Reilly, but let's watch. Now, is this all BS to you, white privilege? No, it's not BS. No? Historically, I think that is accurate. White privilege existed in the past. But I don't think that you right historical wrongs by guilting the present. This white privilege idea is divisive. I've got a black grandson. I've got a multiracial family. Am I supposed to teach that young man, great kid, am I supposed to teach him that his granddad exists because of white privilege? And that or was successful because yeah, of it. Or success because right. of white privilege. That will be divisive. And I'll not have that kind of division in my family. He's a great kid, and that's what he is. He's All a right. kid. 
doesn't matter if it's true, it'll be divisive. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you exist because of it. Your body would not suddenly turn into individual atoms floating around in the galaxy if notice, not for it. Notice O'Reilly even corrected that. Yeah. Riley was like, you benefited. Riley was like, I can't quite like that. That would, that would go. And by the way, look, I mean, first of all, I'm sorry that Stuart Varney's your grandfather. That must suck. Um, <laughs> um, but the, but yeah, you, by the way, that's not divisive at all. Like, I come from a family and we, we had wonderful benefits and now thankfully we're able to pass them on to you. We should recognize in whatever way that that is that not yeah. everyone had those benefits and life was much tougher for a lot of people just because of the place and station that they were born yeah. and the color of their skin. And that's true about life, and that's not something we should necessarily feel guilty about, but that's something that we should slowly, incrementally, be working to understand and hopefully change a little. We know that we're not going to freaking ever even the playing field always among everybody, but I think we would all like it if people had, because we all, it's the land of opportunity, and we would like it if that opportunity were basically... How can the small men survive without an income he can stay alive? We have to join our elfin ends. Those are the many people we are ones. So why can't we all unite? Stop the force, Mississippi, stop all the fights. I'm joined today by Tim Wise. He's an anti-racist educator and author of six books, including White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. Tim, it's really great to have you on. And recently, we've had so much of a blowback to a segment we did addressing Bill O'Reilly's comment that he has never been the recipient or beneficiary of white privilege. And Bill O'Reilly's comment, combined with the feedback I've gotten uh, after we covered that story, really confirms to me that a lot of people don't seem to really understand the concept of white privilege. So let's start there broadly, and then we'll drill down to some of the specifics. Sure. Well, you know, the first thing that's a little bit ironic about Bill O'Reilly specifically not acknowledging white privilege is that, you know, for people who know a little bit about his background, um, he grew up in uh, a decidedly middle class community, but it was Levittown. It was Long Island. Uh, and this is a community that, like the other Levittowns, there were a few. That was the second one. Um, were constructed by their uh, their designer and their developers specifically to be racially exclusive. In other words, he grew up in a community where black and brown folks literally were not allowed to live. So the idea that he didn't have white privilege growing up really flies in the face of his own biography. So that's the first sort of interesting point. Mm. But the bigger issue, and I think it's the one your question speaks to, is that when we talk about white privilege generally, we don't even have to get as material as better housing or better jobs or higher income, although I think there's plenty of evidence that white folks have advantages in those arenas, both historically, which most people would agree with, but even today, I think it's actually more about the sort of day-to-day -day subtle psychological advantages that a person who is white has. The idea that as a white person, I'm not going to be presumed incompetent when I'm applying for a job. If anything, I'll be presumed competent until proven otherwise, especially if I'm white and male, uh, and especially if I'm upper middle class and went to the quote-unquote right colleges. It means that as a white person, I'm going to be presumed law-abiding until proven otherwise. And when I do commit a crime, my race 
uh, and my racial background will play no role in the mainstream uh, explanation of that. Elliot Rogers' shooting spree in California, a very good example of someone who, although his mother is Asian, he was very white identified. In fact, he, he talked about hating that part of himself that wasn't fully white. And so when he does that, or when the school shooters at Columbine, or any of the sort of mass murderers and spree killers who were disproportionately white do what they do, no one ever attributes that to white culture. We don't even know what white culture is. If black folks do that, we ascribe it to some underclass ghetto pathology, quote unquote, that's very specifically about the black community. So white privilege is just the ability to be viewed as an individual, not as a member of a collective, uh, and to and and to get the benefit of the doubt when you're applying for that loan, when you're applying for that job, when you're sitting in that classroom, when you're interacting with a cop. That's a, a much more intangible thing uh, in some ways than material benefits but it has very tangible outcomes and effects. And with regard to Bill O'Reilly, I think there's an interesting example there as well, because if you imagine the Bill O'Reilly physically imposing, loud, angry, a bully, very, very aggressive, his behavior, and by that, that's the description of him on his program, let me be clear, however he is in real life, we don't know. Um, if he were black instead of white, those behavior traits would be analyzed through the lens of race. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it might mean that he wouldn't get the interviews he gets or that he would get fired or wouldn't get fired. It doesn't really matter. It's not material. But because he is white, his personality traits are not in any way seen through the lens of race. And I think that even that, that that's how we could apply it specifically to Bill O'Reilly. Absolutely right. I mean, if you think here's a guy who in his sort of famous, the first interview he did with the president, uh, where he interrupted the president, I think something like 30 times or mm. something. It was a big story about how sort of fundamentally rude he was to the president. If you can imagine sort of the black or brown equivalent of a Bill O'Reilly, and I'm not sure who that would, let's think of somebody like Tavis Smiley, right, who who uh, has interviewed presidents, uh, both white and black, never would, first of all, Tavis's personality is not as aggressive, but Tavis can be, he's a, he's a journalist who asks hard questions. Imagine if he had interrupted uh, George W. Bush, or if he were old enough to have interviewed Ronald Reagan and had interrupted Ronald Reagan 30 some odd times, or if Roland Martin did now, or if Michael Eric Dyson, uh, you know, were to do that, I think, I think any honest person would have to acknowledge that that would be viewed quite a bit differently than someone like Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly can be bellicose and he can be sort of arrogant and people might write it off to him and they might say, God, he's sort of a jerk, but it's never going to be looked at, as you said, through a group lens and that's the difference. I want to talk now a little bit about what have been the pushbacks to the concept of white privilege that we've seen over recent years. One common theme I'm seeing in the reaction I get from the conservative side of my audience is that the concept of white privilege is one that is used to be racist against white people. And as absurd as it is at its face, I'm looking for effective ways to communicate with people who think that, right? Because there's no advantage to just arguing and yelling and screaming. How might we communicate with someone who maybe sincerely believes that the concept of white privilege is a construct to discriminate against people for being white, either as some kind of revenge or for whatever other reason? How do you rationalize a conversation with someone like that? Well, first of all, if we're going to look for evidence of racism, you know, like I think you have to break this down into component parts. If I'm looking for evidence of racism, 
against black people, for instance. I look for data suggesting that there's something happening to black people that can perhaps be attributed to racism. So you're looking at where does the evidence lead you? What is the evidence that whiteness or white privilege as a concept has actually led to or is leading to or even could lead to the disempowerment of white people? How is noting a sociological truth that certain people on balance and on average have advantages in the labor market going to result in discrimination against them? Now, it may lead to greater equal opportunity efforts, which unfortunately for a lot of white folks, they perceive that as discrimination. Well, that was going to be my example. If I said what you just said to me, to some of these folks, they would say, look at affirmative action. That's exactly how it's translated into an anti-white policy. Right. And yet the problem being that whites, for instance, are still more likely, according to all the research, to get into our first choice college quicker than black folks, quicker than Latino folks. So we don't actually lose our edge. And of course, here's the thing about white privilege in schooling, white folks from kindergarten through 12th grade, uh, senior year of high school, according to all the data, far more likely to be taught by the most experienced teachers, far less likely to attend crowded resource poor schools, far more likely to have access to honors and advanced placement classes. So we've actually had 13 years of in effect, systemic affirmative action before we ever apply to college. And then all of a sudden we apply to college and we're having to compete with other people who maybe didn't have the resources in those first 12 to 13 years. And we think that's unfair. This is how white privilege works at a mental level, right? If I'm used to getting 100% of the stuff or maybe 85% of the stuff, and now you tell me that I'm only going to get maybe 65 or 70%, to me, that seems like the end of the world. But that's not the result of discrimination. That's the result of a fair competition. The only way that white folks could actually believe that was discriminatory is if they fundamentally think, and I'm afraid many do, that white folks and particularly white men are just that much smarter. We're somehow genetically or culturally superior because unless that's the case, we're not supposed to have 85% of the stuff. If we'd had equity all this time, we wouldn't have had anywhere near 85% of the stuff. So Mm -hmm. in a way, white privilege has set us up to perceive even a fair competition as discriminatory because we're used to all of it and now we're only going to get our share of it. And and I'm afraid that that's uh, the way that in some ways privilege sets you up for a fall. It leads you to have unrealistic expectations of what fairness looks like. Let's assume we have that conversation and it goes well and we've, we've gotten past that hurdle. The next part where I run up against what seem to be the consistent talking points for those who who, uh, are very angry with the concept of white privilege is that white privilege also includes the idea that white people need to either apologize for the white privilege that that they uh, supposedly have or in any in any way modify their behavior or give things up. And I'll tell you, Tim, I've never spoken to anyone who talks about issues of white privilege in a logical and salient way, who says that the whole point of this discussion is that white people should be apologizing to everyone who's not white or getting stuff taken away. It seems to me like a straw man argument that's been put up there. The only thing that's being asked uh, to be relinquished is the unfair edge. I mean, all we're asking people to give up is is the ability to bank unearned 
advantage and presumptions of competence. We're, we're not talking about taking someone's house. We certainly aren't talking about apologies. Uh, for me as a white person, you know, acknowledging my own privilege simply requires that I think very seriously about things like uh, public policy and how it affects one group of people versus another, how I think about the schools uh, in my community, how I think about job opportunities, making sure, for instance, that if I were in a position to do some hiring or, or I were evaluating employees, that I would consider maybe some of my own internalized biases, making sure that I was reaching out to people who otherwise I might overlook. You know, there was a study last year that was written about in the New York Times, and it found that about half the jobs in the economy nowadays are being filled because of letters of recommendation written by existing employees on mm. behalf of friends. And that has a disproportionate benefit to white folks, to men, to affluent folks. Now, that's not because those employers who are using that mechanism are overt racist or sexist. They're not necessarily trying to hurt anyone. That's just who's in their social circle. So if if, if I understand that that's white privilege and male privilege and class privilege, and I want to have a fair and equitable workplace, I need to go outside of that old boys network. And I've got to be conscious as I do it. That's not about apologizing. It's not about feeling bad. It's about trying to create equity and realizing all the ways that our structures sometimes subvert that. Now, I've been singing the praises of Squarespace on this show for almost a year now, but I just heard that this guy, Jonathan Mann, who does a song a day on YouTube, has taken that concept into the realm of literalism. It's the all-in-one platform, makes it fast and easy to create. You can start with 20 highly customizable templates to make your own professional website. thinking he'd miss some major talking point that I could fill in, but he didn't. Setting aside all of their great features for a moment, that last point he makes is an important one. Squarespace has been a loyal supporter of the podcasting community for a good long time now, so why not thank them for helping make a lot of great shows possible by checking out their free trial for 14 days. Then, when you're ready to sign up, be sure to use the special offer code LEFT, that's just L-E-F-T, which gets you 10% off your purchase, and that code also lets them know that they should keep supporting this show at the same time.
Professor Darity, I remember in the 90s and the 2000s that there was uh, lots of talk about reparations. It was, you know, part of uh, what we say the national discussion was. I remember when David Horowitz's uh, article came out about reasons that reparations is racist. And I just remember that it was a topic on people's lips and um, there was controversy around it. And then it seems to have totally fallen off and nobody's talking about it anymore. And I sort of wonder what you attribute that drop off in interest to and how you think we can revive talk of it and whether you think it's worth reviving talk of it and um, how we can approach it more strategically this time around. So I, I, I think there was a moment when this uh, the, the prospect of reparations for black Americans had sufficient currency that it was something that was being taken seriously and was being debated. Uh, I'm, I'm not certain that there really was an immediate prospect for passage of any legislation to support it but uh but it was it was being treated as a credible policy concern the late manning marable says that the moment that ended that was uh 911 uh he argued that uh when when the um, when the planes flew into the buildings and and uh, sort of altered the landscape in the sense of placing a great deal of national attention on the question of going to war in response, um, the anti-terror campaign, et cetera, that that that's what took uh, that's what took reparations off, off off the table as something that people were paying any serious attention to. So. Um, so I, I I would I would agree with you that in the late 1990s and early the very early part of the the current century uh, there was uh, serious consideration. And I think that you know a further a further factor that that took reparations even even further off the screen uh, was the election of Barack Obama, which was treated by many many people as an act of American reparations in and of itself, um, and and indeed Barack Obama himself openly uh, rejected reparations for Black Americans. So, um, so I think that those are the the two things that have come into play that have led to uh, a kind of a suppression of the of interest in this in this subject. So, uh, so interestingly enough, you know, going against the grain. Uh, I'm actually working on a book on reparations for African Americans, uh, and and the subtitle uh, is well, a part of the title is uh, the subtitle is reparations in uh, in post in quotes in post racial America. So uh, so you know maybe this is a futile effort, but I personally hope to revive the conversation about this. Uh, I also think it it at minimum reintroduces the possibility of talking about policies that are not necessarily specific to black Americans that may have the kinds of positive effects that we associate with a reparations program. So it wouldn't be the same thing because, uh, you know, if we, if we set up some sort of universal program that uh, that might involve, for example, guaranteeing employment to all American citizens, or uh, a 
policy of providing uh, uh, endowments or trust funds to new, newly born infants, depending upon their family's wealth position. Um, you know, if we had those kinds of policies, which were universal policies, those would have, I think, a good effect on the, the position of black Americans. But it still would not be quite the same as an act of redress or compensation for not only um, the history of slavery, but maybe more importantly, the history of Jim Crow in the United States and ongoing discrimination against black folks. And then, Professor Darity, I wanted to ask about uh, the logistics of how you would determine who would be a recipient of a reparations program, you know, who, who should be remunerated for this injustice. I wonder if you, we fall into a trap. I'm reading um, Racecraft at the moment by Barbara and Karen Fields, which talks about the sleight of hand of uh, racism, which is a thing, a real thing that is done in action and a reason for action by uh, dominant, powerful people in society. Uh, the sleight of hand by which that becomes a thing about race, which is to say a characteristic of the oppressed people. And I sort of wonder if we run into that trouble with this question about trying to figure out who counts as, as black, the black race, which is, uh, as we know, like has no material or genetic basis to it, um, how we determine that as a way of uh, making up for or uh, att attempting to fix a problem that really stems from racism, right? The, this, this history, this ongoing history of racism. So I, I don't think it's so complicated to identify who the beneficiaries are. Okay. Uh, you know, my, my, my wife and I have been working on this project for a while, trying to think about what form a reparations program actually would take. And so we've reached the conclusion that there should be two criteria for uh, eligibility for the receipt of reparations. The first is that an individual would have to demonstrate, uh, and I think this is probably less difficult to do than people might imagine, that he or she is the descendant of someone who was enslaved in the United States. And then secondly, that they would have to demonstrate that up to 10 years before the onset of the reparations program, they self-identified as black, Negro, colored, or African American. So, Professor Darity, I wanted to ask about kind of the lens by which we look at issues like this. And I feel like economics is the natural lens that a lot of people use when they look at the South's refusal to give up slavery prior to fighting the Civil War and then actually fighting the Civil War over it. And economics will almost be used as this, like, a, in a, this apologist way and say, oh, well, you know, it was about money. And so what were they supposed to do? And yet when you introduce the idea of economics and the idea of reparations into sort of you know, talking about slavery and making reparations for slavery, all of a sudden, I feel like, at least for some, there's this intense resistance to this idea. And to me, they're both just economics questions. And so I just wanted to ask you, what do you make of this inconsistency in some people's application of economics to racism and to slavery? Okay, so uh, let, let me go to the first, which is, you know, how we think about the current condition of black Americans and what its causes are. So there's a very popular narrative, and it's a narrative that's been embraced by the president, which essentially says that black folks are where they are because of their own dysfunctional behaviors and practices. Um, you know, I, I reject that unequivocally. Um, let me give some counter examples that I think are consistent with a different narrative, which suggests 
that ongoing discrimination and inherited inequalities lie at the heart of what we're observing now. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's actually a very, very perverse fact that the unemployment rate for blacks who have some college education and who have completed high school is actually higher than the unemployment rate for whites who dropped out of high school. So uh, to me, that's, that's a very telling signal about the magnitude of discrimination in American em employment opportunities. Uh, another uh, another uh, study that reinforces that 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 kind of uh, that kind of image is uh, work that was done by the sociologist Diva Pager at Princeton, where she performed a series of field experiments in Milwaukee and in New York City, and she found that uh, black men with no criminal record were less likely to get a call back for a job than white men who did have a criminal record. Uh, and these are, uh, these are felonies. So, uh, you know, again, sort of doing the right thing as a black person does not give you the same range of options or opportunities as doing the right thing as a white person. Uh, and then I think that the most dramatic indicator of uh, economic inequality Across uh, across groups in the United States is associated with disparities in wealth as opposed to income. So, um, in some of the most recent uh, information we have about wealth inequality in the United States, uh, the typical white family in the United States or white household has a net worth has a net worth of approximately one hundred thirteen thousand dollars. So that that's at the median which is at the middle of the distribution. The median wealth position for black families is less than $6,000 at present. So, you know, I've pointed out that if you were to take the average black household, they would have to save their uh, their income at a 100% rate. They would have to engage in no consumption for three consecutive years to be able to close that gap. Uh, also, uh, we have very strong evidence now that uh, if you take into account family or household income, there's no significant difference in savings rates or savings practices between black and white households. So we can't explain this gap on the basis of uh, uh, different attitudes towards saving or blacks being more profligate or, or what we might refer to as the bling factor. Okay. Uh, what we can explain it by is the uh, is the transfer of much larger amounts of wealth across generations, uh, and that's attributable to the capacity of white families and households to do that at a much greater degree than black families and households. And this takes two forms. One form is inheritances, uh, which are transfers that occur when the donor dies. Transfers that occur for the uh, from the donor generation to the recipient generation. The other the other thing that's critical and that we don't think about as much is what we refer to in the jargon as in vivo transfers. An in vivo transfer is one that occurs while the donor is still living, and a variety of forms. It could include uh, parents or grandparents helping a newlywed couple with a down payment for uh, for a mortgage on a home. 
the provision of a child with an automobile or college education. These are all transfers of wealth across generations that uh, that we 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 sometimes think of as fairly innocuous. Where they're not they're not at the front of our front of our mind. But they're very, very important in terms of providing the next generation with a foundation for being economically secure also. And this contributes heavily to the disparity in wealth that we observe between blacks and whites. And then I just wanted to ask, I feel like at least a common response that I've seen in the past when reparations are brought up is either something along the lines of, but that was so long ago, or something even more defensive and maybe even like guilt-based. Like, I didn't do it, you can't blame me, it's not my fault and we shouldn't do this. And I was curious how you approach someone that's coming from it, from that point of view. How do you debunk and get into uh, taking down an argument like that? So uh, my response to that is that the scope of privilege or advantage that's associated with whiteness extends to the folks at the bottom end of the income distribution among among the white community. And it extends in a number of ways. One of the most obvious ways is the relationship that whites, regardless of their income level, have with the police and the system of criminal justice. So there's a certain insulation that whiteness gives you from being subjected to the kind of treatment and murder, as I would, as I see it, of a, a young man like Trevon Martin. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that if you go to the low end of the income distribution for blacks and whites, whites still have substantially more wealth than blacks. In fact, uh, the ratio of of white to black wealth actually gets higher as you move down the income distribution. So there's a wealth advantage that's associated with being white even if you are a lower income white person. There are also health advantages associated with being white regardless of your income level. And there's just generally a difference in social treatment that's associated with being white versus being black in the society. So uh, so my response is that even if an individual is white and poor, they still benefit from whiteness. And uh, and that's that's what requires or demands social compensation in the United States. The young man you're about to meet is out to change how we think and talk about race, and he just might do it, beginning with this cover story in the new issue of The Atlantic magazine. Its provocative title is The Case for Reparations. Yes, reparations, defined in the Merriam-Webster dictionary as the act of making amends or giving satisfaction for a wrong or injury. The wrong or injury in question is what President Lyndon Johnson once called slavery's ancient brutality and the terrible things that have followed it in the name of white supremacy enforced by state power. This article is must-reading for every American. The author is the journalist ta Coates, who grew up in Baltimore, lives in Harlem, and teaches writing at MIT. 
He's now a senior editor of The Atlantic, where in this issue he writes, the payment of reparations would represent America's maturation out of the childhood myth of its innocence into a wisdom worthy of its founders. Thank you for joining me. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Here's exactly what you say. White supremacy does not contradict American democracy. It birthed it, yeah. nurtured it, and financed it. That is our heritage. What is white supremacy? Uh, it is a system uh, that is <laughs> really, really old in this country, which holds that uh, a, a certain group of people who hail you know, with a certain ancestry uh, should always be ensured that they will not sink to a certain level. Um, and that level is the level occupied by black people. Um, and so what the language of what white means adjusts over time. You know, it, you know, it doesn't need a static thing called white. At one point, you know, Irish people did not fit into that. At one point, Italian people did not fit into that. At one point, Jewish people did not fit into that. Um, and now they do. You know, and we've changed that and we've adjusted. The only people who never fit into that are African-Americans. So when you ask whites to look at slavery and its consequences. Right. What are you asking? I am, I am not asking you as a white person to see yourself as an enslaver. I'm asking you as an American to see all of the freedoms that you enjoy and see how they are rooted in things that the country that you belong to condoned or actively participated in in the past. Um, and that covers everything from enslavement to the era of lynching when we effectively decided that we weren't going to, you know, Give, afford African Americans the same level of protection of the law. Uh, it applies to sharecropping when we decided that we were going to, in whole swaths of the country, allow people to be effectively re-enslaved. Uh, it applies to redlining when we decided that people that lived in certain places would get, you know, the largesse of the government, and people who would not. It applies today in terms of mass incarceration when we decide that we are going to be harder on crimes committed by certain people, or the same crime committed, you know, by certain people. Uh, and, and, you know, not be that hard when it's committed by other people. This is heritage. It's, it's with us. It's with all of us. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not with you because you're white, you know. Uh, it's with you because you're an American, just like it's with me because I'm an American. I have to live with this, too. Was there something that hit you in the face as you started going back into the past that you didn't expect to find? It is the degree to which um, where we are right now is, is not a mistake and is not inexplicable. Um, we think of the, the, the problem of racism, um, the quote-unquote Negro problem, or the problem with the color line, you know, all sorts of variations of how it's talked about, as something that's really, really hard to figure out. And it's actually not hard to figure out. You can literally see uh, a policy, you know, from the 17th century, uh, stretching up into, you know, uh, if we can, you know, say conservatively, into the 1960s, into the 20th century, the mid-20th century here in America, uh, designed to injure African Americans. If you understand that and if you take that, uh, it would not make sense that that would just sort of go away, that that injury would disappear within 50 years of half-halting you know, reform and, and trying to make things better. It's not actually that hard to figure out. We have it at our core that a certain group of people you know, who are marked by ancestry, you know, who are marked by melanin, must represent a bottom for us. Um, and, you know, you can see that, you know, in the era of enslavement, you can see that literally being written as I, you know, showing the piece into the laws. Um, you can see that, you know, when we decide, you know, to, you know, end this period of enslavement, and yet we still can't, you know, get away from, you know, having a two-tiered society. Uh, you can see it, you know, most depressingly, I have to say for me, uh, when we go to uh, erect our modern safety net. 
during the New Deal, which, you know, progressives, and, you know, and I consider myself in that camp, you know, like to say, you know, that, that was the era, you know, that was our golden era. Social Security, when it's initially passed, excluded African Americans. Now, it didn't, it wasn't written that way. It wasn't written that way. What was written was folks who were either, you know, worked as farmhands or worked as help in the house. Domestic excluded. help. Domestic help, yes, yes, they were excluded. But what that had the effect of doing is excluding, I think, roughly 80% of uh, African Americans in the South and something around 65% uh, of African Americans nationally. And what people will tell you is, well, that got fixed, and it did get fixed. Um, but the problem is during those years, people are injured. People are injured. And that's how you get a gap. The fact that, you know, you injure people for those years, it doesn't mean that, you know, people will catch up when you eventually fix it. And I say that it relates to us today because the argument that we make about Obamacare and the, the Medicaid expansion is, well, eventually market pressures will force those states in the South to catch up. They'll fix it. They'll fix it. But see, in those intervening years, black folks who needed it most, much like black folks who needed it most, you know, during, during the era uh, when we passed Social Security, will be injured again. And the fact that it gets fixed will not close the gap. And so the question becomes, why do we keep doing that? You know, why do we look at a map of, of um, Obamacare, as they say, and where the Medicaid expansion has gone through and, and where it hasn't? And why do we see this, you know, swath of the country that's directly identical to where we had plantation slavery? But you set out to find out, and, and I was intrigued that you set out to find out in the here and now. Yes. You didn't start back then. No. I mean, you started in Chicago. Right. With a fellow named... Clyde Ross. Clyde Ross, who uh, is in his early 90s now, and one of the essential theses of the piece is that uh, we tend to think of uh, segregation and Jim Crow, and we see, you know, uh, uh, separate but equal. We see, you know, separate water fountains, separate bathrooms, and I, and I wanted to deepen that and say that the relationship is actually different. It's not merely excluding somebody; it's the taking of resources from one group for the betterment of another group. And this happens in, in all sorts of ways. Slavery is obviously the most direct way, but Clyde Ross who was born in Mississippi, literally has, you know, his family's land taken out from underneath of him, underneath of him and reduced to sharecropping. Uh, when you talk about Mississippi and you say African-Americans not having the right to vote, this is not like a symbolic thing. This is the right to see how your tax dollars are used. It actually has effects on your life. Uh, and he saw that and he moved north. He went, he went served in World War II. Uh, noticed that things were a little different in the country, came back, could not live in Mississippi, moved to Chicago, thought it was different, you know, and certainly some things, you know, really were different. I don't want to minimize that. Uh, but when he went to get that emblem uh, of citizenship, of, of, you know, being part of that, you know, big, broad, you know, America, that middle class America that we exalt, a home, when he went to buy a home, he found that he had actually been cut out of society in a much more complicated way. How so? Well, Clyde Ross bought a home uh, at the time, or attempted to buy a home, at a time in which uh, uh, home buying in this country was subsidized, uh, where we had an FHA that insured uh, loans. African Americans were totally cut out of that. FHA, Federal Housing Administration. Yes, exactly. Uh, and not only were they not only were they cut out of it, not only were they cut out of it, we had redlining, which is a phrase that you know we all know, but we don't talk enough about. Wherein it was said, uh, a neighborhood in which African Americans live cannot receive FHA funding, and that went beyond the FHA. Banks decided who they were going to lend money to based on FHA policy. Largely, they responded to that in much the same way. Uh, on, on the Atlantic website, you'll see we have actual maps where you can look at a city like Chicago and see where the loans were and where the loans weren't. And this was a practice that, you know, 
lasted on paper, on paper uh, into 1960 and likely much longer than that. So you go on, until America reckons with the moral debt it has accrued and the practical damage it has done to generations of black Americans, it will fail to live up to its own ideals. Talk for just another moment about that practical damage. Um, a black child that comes into this world is, you know, because of policy, because of the policies of this country, you know, over, over, over many years, is going to arrive with injuries that a white child just isn't. You know, and until we start, you know, decide that, you know, so first of all, until we accept that, <laughs> until we say that, yeah, yeah, until we say we did something as a country, yes, we did do something. You know, we have done something. You know, and in many ways we continue to do things. Um, that mean that that black child is going to come in with injuries that, that that white child is not. We just aren't having a conversation. And you can't substitute and say, poor children. You know, that, that's a separate problem. That's another problem. It's a real problem, a related problem. But it's a separate problem. Until we, you know, directly confront the problem of racism, I don't think we're getting at it. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the slavery reparations study. Americans as a group don't understand what racism is and how its institutional framework still affects our country. A January report from Race Forward explains some of why that is. Quote, two-thirds of race-focused media coverage fails to consider how systemic racism factors into the story, instead typically focusing upon racial slurs and other types of personal prejudice and individual-level racism, unquote. We tune in for the Donald Sterling best-of tapes, but not for the way his slumlord business practices led to multiple racial discrimination lawsuits. As Michael Denzel Smith writes in The Nation, this focus on the soundbite has reinforced, quote, the understanding of racism as a personal obstacle to be overcome rather than a system of oppression rooted in white supremacy, unquote. Congressman John Conyers has reintroduced H.R. 40, the Commission to Study the Reparation Proposals for African Americans Act, to expose the reality that building a nation using slave labor leaves a centuries-long legacy that cannot simply be overcome with the individual willpower myth Smith referenced. The NAACP is backing the bill, which you can read at the Action Alert tab at NAACP.org, with public support bolstered by a new in-depth piece for The Atlantic by ta Coates entitled The Case for Reparation. The bill specifically calls for a federal commission to review the institution of slavery and its impact on African Americans to this day, allows for the formal acknowledgement of the brutality and inhumanity imposed upon a people inside our nation's borders, and would make recommendations to correct slavery's persisting effects these many generations later. Help Conyers and the NAACP push for a companion bill in the Senate. It's long past time we came to terms with our history in this country. Visit NAACP.org where you can find sample letters and emails to send to your representatives and read Coates' piece. It's long and it's important, especially for those of us interested in mitigating our white privilege. Smith sums up why it is imperative for all of us to stand behind a study that would create a foundational understanding of our country's history and allow us to finally address the issues of inequality that persist 
persist more than 150 years after the Civil War. Quote, the descendants of enslaved Africans in America have endured a particular type of inequality, one based on an ideology of white supremacy and borne out in a racial caste system that requires a particular type of corrective. The un- and underpaid labor of generations of black bodies created massive amounts of wealth for everyone but the peoples whose work was exploited. And we've continued to suffer the consequences. The least the American government can do is cut a check. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? Help us to understand this point in your piece. Quote, to ignore the fact that one of the oldest republics in the world was erected on a foundation of white supremacy, to pretend that the problems of a dual society are the same as the problems of unregulated capitalism, is to cover the sin of national plunder with the sin of national lying. The lie ignores the fact that reducing American poverty and ending white supremacy are not the same. Right. Explain that. There are plenty of African Americans in this country, and I would say that this goes right up to the White House, who are not by any means poor, but are very much afflicted by white supremacy. This, you know, came up for me very powerfully um, during the, uh, at the height of the birther controversy about the president. Um, with Donald Trump is, you know, demanding that the president release his, you know, long form birth certificate, and then after that, demanding that we see his transcripts. Um, Barack Obama is the best we got as <laughs> African Americans. I mean, this is as, this is as good as it get. You know, the, the the comedian Sinbad, you know, says, you know, there are no more, there are no black men, you know, raised in Hawaii with roots in Kansas. That's just not going to happen again. <laughs> you know, this is the best we have, and if you don't believe him. <laughs> That you definitely don't believe me, and you definitely don't believe my son, you know, and you definitely don't believe, you know, uh, these black folks, you know, you know, who are born in Cleveland, or born in Baltimore, or born in, you know, Chicago. So, you know, young African Americans who see that, who see, you know, people who have, you know, totally, totally played by the rules, and then come to their, you know, neighbors and tell them to play by the rules too, and they see them being treated with a double standard. Um, the message is, you know, you're not really part of this. The message is a broken social contract. There's one social contract for one group of people and another one for you. I'm a strong, strong believer that the filter of racism and the filter of white supremacy is greatly underestimated, you know, in this country. And that's, that's really the one thing, you know, I've, I've tried to get across. I think it seems um, to me that's why you wrote this article. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's very much why I wrote the piece. And I think, like, one of the things is that... Um, we talk about race a lot. We do. You know, so I think it's like wrong to say, you know, well, we don't have conversations. No, we, we actually talk about it quite a bit. Um, I don't think we talk about it in depth as much as, as much as, you know, we should. And I think part of the problem is uh, when you start talking about it in depth, you know, when you start getting to a level where you say, listen, everything we are, everything we have isn't, you know, is built on past sins, that the, that the things are tied. The things that when you start recognizing that there's something congenital, uh, you know, it's not just a weight for Americans. I would say it's, it would be a weight for any society, you know, com comprised of human beings. Um, it's very, very hard, you know, in mass 
for groups. And I, and I, you know, to be honest with you, I have doubts about our ability to do it. Our ability as, as white folks to no. say... No. To say we were what this this nation was founded on white supremacy. It no. is an organizing principle of our society. No, I have doubts about us as Americans to do it. I mean, if, if you think about it, for African Americans, it's a very depressing picture too. Because if you're African American, it's like, okay, and then what? So what am I supposed to do with that information? You know, what, where, where where do I go with that? I'm a minority. It's not like you know we're not we're clearly not going to have an armed revolution to seize any power. So so what? Then you're telling me this, but what am I then supposed to do? Um, it, it, it's terrifying. It's terrifying all around. And it's not even terrifying because we're Americans. I think if I spent any amount of time in any country, um, all countries, you know, have sins in their past. And getting states to confront those sins honestly and directly is really, really hard. The one example, you know, that people often put up is, is Germany. They say, well, well, Germany, you know, was really able, you know, to confront its past. But the difference is... Um, Germany had killed off like 80 to 90 percent of, of the Jews who lived there. So they didn't have Jews alive as active, you know, political actors to use that history. It's very easy, you know, to apologize for something when there's no one there to draw any sort of consequence from it directly from you in your country, you know, to be part of your politics. Um, it's fine to apologize after you've wiped everybody out, um, you know, for all the good that does. America has a much, much more complicated problem. African Americans are very, very much part of the political process here. Um, and so to, you know, you know, as Americans, you know, to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, this is who we are, you know, uh, and that's okay. Frankly, I don't know that any country has ever done that. You know, I'm really, really clear about that. Um, but we look at ourselves as pioneers, you know, in terms of liberty, in terms of freedom, in terms of enlightenment values. We, you know, we say that we're, you know, pioneers. And I, you know, firmly, firmly believe that reparations is the chance to, to you know, to be pioneers. You know, we say we set all these examples about liberty and freedom and democracy and all that, that great stuff. Well, you know, here's an opportunity for us to live that out. Having read the article, I, I know that you do not mean reparations as white folks writing checks to black folks. Right. Today, right? right. So in an ideal world, what form would reparations take? In an ideal world, when we talk about social justice, um, we would understand it as, you know, part of healing that heritage and dealing with that, dealing with that legacy. And I mean, right now, following John Roberts' line, uh, I think what he said was to, to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. What we want is a kind of colorblindness. We think that's the answer. Um, but colorblindness isn't the answer. Color isn't the problem. Racism is the problem. And being conscious of racism is the solution. So when you, you, know, you talk about what that looks like concrete, um, I would like to see that in our policy. When we were talking about, you know, ACA, you know, it's very funny. One of the attacks, you know, from the right, from people like Rush Limbaugh, was that this is reparations. Well, not quite, but it would be nice if it could be. <laughs> you know, it would be nice if that was part of it, if you actually did say that. Hey, you Obama know. Obamacare, the affordable yeah, care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing. Listen, an ideal, like taking this outside of the realm of politics, in the you know, realm of just straight talking about this. Yeah, this will disproportionately benefit African-Americans. And yeah, that's a really, really good thing. You know, it might actually help, you know, heal this heritage that we have over here. You know, and in an ideal world, you could actually say that, you know, um, in a world in which people are actively considering reparation and actively thinking about it and talking about it in a serious way. You could say that. You could say that. And all the more to be said, because it's many of the former Confederate states are where the metrics of life are the lowest right. for right. African-Americans. Right. So you're saying that in a just world. That would be rectified. That would be rectified. And we would talk. We would just we would talk very, very differently. We would not be afraid to to 
to talk about our heritage, and we would not be afraid to talk about racism, and we would be able to talk about white supremacy in our policy. We would not have to retreat to other language like, quote-unquote, you know, race. You know, some critics who greatly admire your work and who acknowledge that, indeed, white supremacy has been a central organizing principle of American life, find your pessimism, <laughs> that's their term, yes. at odds with the hard evidence. I mean, yes. Jonathan Chait yes. of New York Magazine looks at how, quote, the United States has progressed from chattel slavery to emancipation to the end of lynching to the end of legal segregation to electing an African-American right. president and sees that there are real signs of racial maturing. Yes, yes. Well, um, that's the kind of progress that you highlight and you brag about if you're not on the other end of it. You know, if you're Martin Luther King, you know, it's 1965, and you're, you know, making that, you know, long march uh, through Alabama, um, certainly you can look around and say, wow, at one point in Alabama, you know, my ancestors 100 years ago were enslaved right here, um, or, you know, in this region, you know. Um, and isn't it something that, you know, we've progressed to a level that I'm not enslaved? Well, th that's progress. Right. I mean, yes, that is progress. Jonathan Chayden is, is, is very, very much right. Also, you know, um, if somebody, you know, uh, every day comes home, you know, and beats you with a tire iron, you know, and then, you know, decides to stop beating you, um, that would be progress. But it doesn't change the fact that you are laying, you know, down on the ground bleeding. You know, this, this is a fact, you know. So, yeah, yeah it's progress. It's progress, but what, what does that then mean? You know, does that mean that everything's over? Does that mean, you know, it's okay? Does that mean it's, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, progresses, you know, that aren't necessarily, you know, celebrated. You know, you say, well, I'm relieved. You know, I agree, I agree that sort of, uh, species of progress with relief. I am relieved that all those things happened, you know, but I'm not, you know, going to dance and celebrate and, you know, that's not to be congratulated. I'm relieved, you know. I think that's, you know, how most African Americans would greet that. Hey, Jay, it's me, Fred Heavenstone from Boca Raton again. Um, on a continuation of the uh, misandry topic, something that I noticed, because I, I am a feminist and I'm active at least online in the feminist community, um, and I noticed uh, from a lot of people when you talk about victim blaming and stuff like that, one of certain men's favorite ways of blaming victims of rape is to basically compare human males to non-human males in order to blame victims of rape. So it's like, you know, you have a picture of a woman who's topless, say, with written on her body, still not asking for it, and someone go and some guy comments, oh, but that's a bit like throwing dead fish in the water and not expecting sharks to show up. It's like, yeah, but men are not sharks. And, and now, Miss Sandra may not be the best word for it, but I think, like, I think someone said it best on my Twitter feed once, no one expresses misandry more than men's rights activists and, you know, um, uh, well, generally just misogynists. So uh, that's what I have to say. Thanks. And uh, keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. This is Peter out in Chicago. I actually expected someone else to call in about this, but no one did. So I guess uh, I decided to be the one to do it. 
This is a response to Sonia's voicemail. Hey, Jay, this is Sonia from Minnesota. In the healthcare podcast, where she makes the analogy that, well, yeah, not all men are, you know, violent or rapists, but the, the bowl of M&Ms. There is a bowl full of M&Ms in front of you, but you know that some, just a very small few, but some of them are poison. So, you refuse to have any. Well, what's wrong with you? Not all of them are poisoned, or you eat some, and you're poisoned. Well, you should have known better. You knew some of them were poisoned, and that is where we are. The not all men hashtag was certainly ridiculous, and it was taking a defensive posture when it was a time where we should be listening to women and uh, empathizing and trying to understand their experiences. But that analogy is disgusting, and uh, I think as a man, it's, I mean, it's insulting. And how is uh, that any different from making the analogy that, oh, well, you know what, some M&Ms are poison, uh, so, you know, I stay away from black men because I know not all black men are violent, but uh, enough of them are that I just don't engage, or any minority, or any group. So, I don't know, someone needs to explain to me how that wasn't sexist. I actually think she should be ashamed of herself for making that analogy. And I'm surprised that, as a man, you put it on the show. That's all I have to say. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, I love analogies, but if there is one thing I love almost as much, it is explaining analogies to people who have seemed to have misinterpreted them. So, Peter from Chicago, it's hard to tell if he completely misinterpreted the analogy in question here or if he's just a little bit too focused on one part of it and he thinks that the one part is problematic, but maybe he gets the, the broader point. It's hard to tell. But this correction will come in two parts, and, and the first will sort of give the broad overview, and that is that whether it be Peter or anyone else, if you have interpreted this analogy to be basically a justification from a woman's perspective for why it would be correct to uh, avoid men entirely because they are dangerous, then you are way off the mark. Like you're just not getting it at all. Um, my understanding of Sonia's uh, analogy is that the whole point is that women are in a no-win situation regardless of how they interact with men. And so just to quickly go over it, you know, uh, if a woman is, you know, a little bit concerned about her safety in dealing with men and she expresses that concern, then she is certain to get a reaction from men saying, how dare you say that men are dangerous and that you need to be concerned about them because not all men are like that. I'm one of the good guys, for instance, and you've offended me by suggesting that all men are dangerous because they're not and you should know better. And every single time you mention the fact that some men are dangerous, you need to go out of your way to also mention that not all men are dangerous because that shows that you're taking my feelings into consideration, which is very important. And then you have the other side where a woman decides that, you know what, like 
men are excellent members of humanity. They are going to treat me as an absolute equal. They are going to appreciate me for my mind, body, and soul, and I'm going to be able to dress exactly the way I want to dress that makes me comfortable without any concern uh, with how men might respond to me. So a woman dresses herself up nicely and goes out and then is leered at and street harassed and maybe even sexually assaulted or abused. And then, of course, the reaction she's going to get is, well, what did you expect? Men are terrible. They're beasts. You can't trust them. I mean, how could you have expected to be able to wear something like that and then go out into the world where those animals are and not expect to have exactly what happened to you happen to you? You know, I mean, you give a steak to a lion, you expect him to react, right? Well, look at that blouse you've got on. It's the same damn thing. Now, not me, of course. I mean, I'm one of the good ones. Like, I would never do something like that. But man, most men are, or at least some of them are just the worst. I mean, me, I'm great. Like, I would treat you like a princess. You know, if you were with me, then I would put you on a pedestal and I would worship you and you could come home with me and live in my attic where you would be safe from the outside world and all of those terrible men. And I mean, you wouldn't be able to leave because then you wouldn't be safe anymore. But if you could stay in the attic where I could keep you safe and we'd put up some nice yellow wallpaper to make it sunny and bright so you'd feel good and I would take care of you for the rest of your days and you would live happily ever after. Doesn't that sound great? So that's basically the two two uh, schools of thought of uh, at least a portion of the population who take it upon themselves to be the loudest in the uh, in the conversation of uh, gender relations, and that's the point of the analogy is is to point out that women are going to get yelled at no matter what they do. Now, part two of this correction is is the uh, the idea that saying that some men, some very small portion of men, are violent or analogous to poisoned M&Ms, how is that different from saying that some small portion of black men are violent and therefore maybe it's a reasonable thing to avoid black men? Well, if you're a heterosexual woman and you're interested in men, then men as a broad, diverse group is the entire group. There, There's no uh, sort of like hidden bigotry involved when dealing with and referring to the literally entire group. Whereas when you break it down farther and you say, well, some some black men are violent, what you're immediately implying is that A, black men are violent because they're black, and also that men who are not black are less violent and less dangerous than black men. So that it's just not it's not analogous. It's neither here nor there. That's not what the analogy was saying. And those pieces don't fit together. So that's why it's not, you know, it's not sexist in the way it would have been racist to say that some black men are violent. And so you should think about avoiding them. I, th- I think that covers it. Uh, so today, um, just to, to finish up, I have um, a backlog of people to thank for the fundraiser. Uh, but first, I want to read an email that I got from Kathy. Kathy uh, was one of the donors. She donated $100 and then wrote me this email. And I think this is very sort of indicative of exactly the kind of reaction I was expecting for people to have. So Kathy says, The first time you spoke of the fundraiser and the new app, I wondered why. I like the old app just fine, 
But when you explained your idea for an app to help folks access both the Best of the Left specifically and the Best of the Left generally, meaning all the other shows that I use as sources and others that are worthy mentions, uh, then she says, I put down my coffee and listened again. What a fitting idea for Best of the Left. The way you pull concepts and clips together is awesome and often inspires me to check out other shows when I can find them. Such an app would help me to check them out before my inspiration slash memory fades. Bet I'm not the only one. Smiley face. Exactly. To catch everyone up, if you missed it, the idea is to build a new mobile application branded best of left, but meant to support the entire progressive media community. It would be a free app available to anyone with a smartphone who could uh, you know, quickly download it and have access not just to this show, but to quickly gain access to all kinds of progressive media shows, mostly the ones uh, featured in, in you know, best of left itself. But you can kind of let your imagination run wild. You can imagine how a, you know, a single portal for a, a person maybe not familiar with podcasting, maybe not familiar with progressive media, could access this one place so that, you know, you as a person who already knows about this stuff could say like, oh, you'd like this, download this one app and just explore around a little bit and find what you like. You know, you don't have to go to, you know, two dozen different podcasts and download them all separately and see which ones you like. They're all in the app. You can just try them one by one right there. It's it's easy. So that that's the plan. And uh, we, we've had good reactions so far. We have raised $5,000, a little bit more than $5,000 of our $15,000 goal. So just a little bit more than one third of the way to the goal. And what I realized was because the donations have been coming in anywhere from, you know, $10, $25, $100, more than $100, $200, But, you know, it's, it averages sort of around $100 a person. And then I realized we only need 100 more people to donate $100 and we're at the goal. That sounds so doable, it's ridiculous. Because, I mean, maybe I'm biased, but I think this is a really good idea. So if a hundred people could donate a hundred dollars to get an app like this built, like I, I just, I don't see any downside. So, uh, you know, to that end, I have lots of people to thank who have already donated. Mary Sue from Austin, Texas, Lauren from Belmont, Massachusetts, uh, Corinne, uh, Corinne from Seattle, Washington, Glenn from Sydney, Australia, Jake from Seattle, Washington, Ellen from Columbus, Ohio, Ted from uh, currently living in New Zealand, David from Gaithersburg, Maryland, Asha from uh, Chicago, Illinois, Austin from Ackworth, Georgia, Jeff from Sacramento, California, Mitch from Langley, British Columbia, Canada, Laura from Lima, Ohio, Carl from Vernon Hills, Illinois, Andrew from Ockham, California, Kathy Knight from Ambler, Pennsylvania, Jerry from uh, Sandy, Utah, Brian from Alexandria, Virginia, Brian from Madison, Wisconsin, Angela from Kingsley, uh, oh, I don't have the state, I wonder where that is. Sorry, uh, Angela. Brian from Babylon, New York. Marianne from uh, Philadelphia. Wayne from Sherman Oaks, California. Sarah from Hamburg, Germany. Excellent. I love those foreigners. 
uh, or I think they're mostly expats living abroad. Uh, David from Farmington Hills, Michigan. Taylor from uh, Los Angeles, California, personal friend of mine. Matthew from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. David from Whitesville, North Carolina. Ryan from Lee's Summit, Montana. Vince and Elise from Wilmington, Delaware. Michael from Tucson, Arizona. Mark from Prairie Village, Kansas. Kryn from New York, New York. And David from Olympia, Washington, uh, otherwise known as Dave from Olympia, Washington. So huge thanks to everyone who has donated. We are seriously making progress. We're a third of the way there, and about half the month is over. It's 100 people donated an average of $100. This is so doable. I can taste it. Head over to bestofleft.com. Click on the big banner for the fundraiser. Uh, There's all sorts of perks and prizes, uh, T-shirts and sweatshirts and uh, all sorts of fun stuff. So if you're interested, check it out. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, obviously, through the fundraiser at the moment. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And See you